19. And we are continuing our subject this evening on the subject of evangelism. And I'll make this statement. I know that you've heard many, many times before that evangelism is the lifeblood of the church. This is not one of the optional programs that God gives us to choose from. It's not an elective course in in discipleship, but this is one of the most basic of all functions of a New Testament church. When you read the New Testament epistles, you'll especially read the Apostle Paul where he instructs on many different things in the church, on the work of the church. Uh, He gives us information about the officers of the church. We learn from him about selection of pastors. We learn about deacons and their character. We learn about their diligence. We learn about the membership of the church. We learn that every individual member of the church functions like a part of a body. And you put all of those parts of the body together and you have a complete body functioning under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We learn from him things such as uh, taking tithes, bringing our tithes and offerings. We learn about ministerial gifts. We learn about faith and practice. We learn about the inspired word of God and how that is uh, to rule our lives. So we learn a a lot about the many different functions of a New Testament church. One of the interesting things about New Testament doctrine is that Jesus did not spend any personal time in development of most of those issues, but rather he functioned on one particular area of church member responsibility, and that was preaching the gospel. Now, we're all very familiar with the Great Commission that says, go into all the world and start praise bands, and go into all the world and begin Awana programs, and go into all the world and pump people up. And you you wouldn't be too surprised, I think, to find out that a lot of people think I'm actually serious when I say things like that, that they don't actually know what the Great Commission is, where Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So Jesus did not develop all of these other teachings of the church personally. He left that to the disciples and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us those things later in the New Testament. So this means that the first thing that the disciples learned from Jesus about church work was the necessity of preaching the gospel. And so whatever the church may do, the gospel is up front and center. That is the church's most necessary work. And so in these few lessons on Sunday evenings, we've been looking at that responsibility. Our subjects have been the gospel lighthouse. Have you answered the call? Who needs the gospel? Merciful evangelism and the gospel for all people. And this evening's message takes up where I left off, really, in in the last point of the last message, and that is the power that makes the word of God effectual in the heart of a sinner. Now, we have the responsibility to preach the gospel but we've not been given the responsibility to convert the sinner. Not even the person who receives the gospel is able to do that. So the gospel itself, as we read it from the word of God, as we give it to people, it is useless unless it's supercharged by the Holy Spirit. And whenever a preacher or whenever an individual, uh, an individual member of the church, the witness, whenever that person is tasked with producing the results... You don't get converts to the Lord, you get converts to the preacher. And it's more important that we get converts to the Lord. Now, in the scripture that I want to read tonight, we we see different reactions to the gospel when it's preached. And then what happens when, when the Holy Spirit is the agent 
who is the one that produces the results. Now, if you look here in Acts chapter 13, I want to begin reading in verse number 42. I think your lesson sheet and maybe the outline here on the on the screen there says 44. But let's actually back up to verse number 42 and start there. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, what we're reading here is from... Uh, one of the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, the first one, in fact, when he was preaching in the city of Antioch of Pisidia, which is, of course, the uh, on that first missionary journey would be a little bit later when he started the churches in Galatia. So verse 43 says, Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles." For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. I'll stop there just a second. I've always wondered why that the Holy Spirit had Luke to write, first of all, that the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women. Usually the Bible mentions the men first, but here it says the women, and I take from that that the very last thing you want to happen is to make the women mad about anything. So I think maybe that's why it's put first here. Verse 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came into Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. This passage is just really an eye-opener. It's very instructive about how different people respond to gospel preaching. When Paul preached uh, his message, there was an immediate reaction to him. And if you want to review what Paul said in this message, you can go back as far as verse number 14. And there you will find, reading from 14, verse 14 forward, the only, you'll find the only full-text sermon of Paul's that we find in Scripture. And his sermon begins with a, with a brief history of Israel, and that was for the purpose of showing the people that Jesus was the final successor to King David and how that he was not recognized as the Messiah when he came, But instead, his death was demanded by the unbelieving Jews. And even though Christ was perfectly innocent of everything he was charged with, yet he was crucified and laid in a tomb, and then God raised him from the dead. That's Paul's message. And I think you recognize that as being really the core elements of the gospel. And then Paul concludes in verses 38 and 39 with the cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, the one we've been discussing so much on Wednesday nights, and that is the doctrine of justification by faith. And when Paul preached this message, it was one of those times that it really hit the hearers hard. Really, that was quite often in Paul's preaching. Uh, 
sometimes we get concerned about our preaching, whether we've hit the people hard enough or it has enough effect. Paul didn't really have to worry about that too much. Uh, People were just hit hard with his messages, and some didn't like it. Some became angry. And then there were others that wanted to hear more about it. You can probably guess which ones were the ones that were angered about it. That was the Jews because he specifically indicted them in the death of Christ. So the gospel, as he preached it, provoked different reactions. Some of that's favorable, some of it's receptive. Sometimes people are incensed, and sometimes just people, people just reject it outright, outrightly and often with anger. What makes the difference in people? What is it that makes them receive the gospel? It can't, it can't be that all Jews reject the gospel of Christ and they won't hear because the one who preached the message was the most hard-hearted of all the Jews and, and he became really the, probably the strongest Christian that we read of in the New Testament. Without doubt, I think he is. And then it can't be that all Gentiles love the gospel and so they're the ones that are saved because many people that listened to Paul considered him to be a madman. When he preached God in the flesh, that was bad enough. But then to think that this man who hung on a cross, who was there dying as a criminal, was actually God, and that he would save them from their sins, that was far beyond even their wildest imagination in their mythology. So what is it that makes the difference? Why did some believe and some didn't? Well, the answer does not lie within us. The difference is in what the Holy Spirit does with the gospel. He takes that preached word and then he applies that truth in the heart of the hearer. Now, I'd like you to notice, first of all, that for the gospel to have success, the word has to be sown in the heart of the hearer. Now, the first indication of success when Paul preached was the reaction of the Gentiles. What he had to say interested them. And the initial response was that they wanted to hear more. What Paul said to them was new. Obviously, he spoke something that was near to their hearts. It seemed to be something that would bring them more satisfaction in religion than they ever heard before. And so the people were really interested. These were the ones that, uh, mostly those were the heathen Gentiles. But there were also some Jewish proselytes that were in that crowd. They were listening. And those proselytes were Gentiles that had been fed up with all the immoralities and injustices in their society. They were attracted to the Jewish religion because of its morality and because of its monotheism. Of course, that means the belief in one God. But what they found in the Jews' religion was emptiness. It was moral, no question about that, but it wasn't satisfying. And so when Paul began to preach things like forgiveness of sin in verse 38... And then the impotence of the law of Moses for justification in verse 39, this is something that intrigued them. So their interest was piqued. And so in their rationalization of the things that they heard, that caused them to start to weigh the differences between what they had heard and what the Apostle Paul preached. And they begin to see the emptiness of their outward religion and that it couldn't satisfy now, that's important in the preaching of the gospel. Interest is, is important because you're, you're never going to convert anybody that's not interested. Uh, you have to have that. If there is no interest, no conversion. But interest is not enough. Interest has to be transformed into something that's more substantial. See, the seed that's sown, the gospel that's preached, has to have more than just itself to bring a person to salvation. 
Now, to the mind, the things that you tell a person, they may be attractive to them. They may even seem rational to them. I mean, you, you ask somebody, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? And they say, well, explain to me what's heaven, what's hell. You explain to them, what are they going to say? Well, of course, I'd rather go to heaven. That's a rational thought. That's a rational decision-making process. But rationalization, figuring out the facts, is not enough. That doesn't bring a person to repentance and faith. So we do need to understand that belief in the gospel is not rationalization of the facts. And that's where a lot of preachers go wrong in their explanations of what actually takes place in the human heart. Some people preach that that every person has been equally granted enough faith to believe. And what happens is that that faith lies dormant, and then whenever the gospel is preached, then that person can, that faith is activated, that person activates it, and he believes. But there's no place in the Scripture that says anything like that. The Bible doesn't say that any person is born with faith. In fact, the Apostle Paul said all men have not faith. And so uh, man can never just rationalize a person can't rationalize himself into the kingdom of god faith has to have an object and if god has given every person faith then what is the object of that faith well if the object is christ then it means everybody would be saved and if the object is not christ then it's not a faith that's any good anyway that's not a faith that leads anybody to salvation see faith is not just some surreal concept that just floats out there faith has to have an object Now, the clear teaching of Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in trespasses and sin, that there is no faith in us until God grants faith through his marvelous grace. And we're all familiar with that. Ephesians 2, 8 says this. But by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, I may be going a little bit off point here uh, just to add this into it. Well, really, it's not off point. It's just further explanation I hadn't intended But there are people that argue about that verse, and they say, well, what is the gift of God? Is it the grace? Is it the faith? Is it salvation? Well, I think it includes all of that. And certainly without question, I think it includes the faith that we have, that that is given by God. So this kind of faith is not something that every person has. If every person had it, that would make us universalist. And that means we believe that everybody's going to be saved regardless. So faith is not given to every person only to those that God purposely saves. See, he has to be involved in this. So these people were interested in the gospel, and what they did was to have a reaction to the outward call of the gospel that was planted in their heart. Now, secondly, I want you to notice then that the word is cultivated by the minister. Now, the next part of the success of the gospel is that the hearer who has become interested has had the minister take a special care to cultivate that interest that's been shown. Now, I I want you to understand when I say minister, I'm not just talking about me standing behind a pulpit preaching a message, but I'm speaking to you. You may be the witness to someone. And these people were, were interested enough in what Paul said that they were anxious to hear more immediately. They didn't want to wait until the next Sabbath day. And we notice in verse 42, they desired the word of God to be preached the next Sabbath. But verse 43 says, Now when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas. So these people were so anxious to hear more that they were ready for another sermon right then. How many times has that happened? And I, 
when I get through preaching a sermon, there's very it's very rare that somebody would come up to me, you know, you know something, Pastor, I just can't wait till the next service. Uh, could you preach another message right now? And that might be due to my uh, inabilities in preaching, or it may be that we have been so accustomed to hearing the Word of God and it's so readily available to us that it's caused us to take the Word of God for granted. Uh, we really really ought to rejoice every time we hear God's word, but it's so readily available that that people don't, and, and that is in good churches, They, I don't think a lot of times they even think about how blessed we are to be able to sit under correct preaching of God's word. Now, when, when Paul saw the interest of these people, he encouraged them to pursue that interest. Now, there are some people who say that verse number 43 is where these people are saved. Some say it's in verse number 48. But it doesn't make any difference. Either 43 or 48, the same is still true. It's a minister's job to cultivate the interest. And so when the gospel is planted, it has to be watered. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. So Paul and Barnabas took some time to do some watering and encouraging that seed that was sown. And so by the next Sabbath day, the whole city was buzzing about this message and they couldn't wait to come in to hear more about it. Now I want you to notice that it was the word that attracted them. See, God is well capable with his word and the word alone to draw people to himself because the word is what actually changes the heart. This is what Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. But there are many churches that don't think the word of God is enough. And so they've converted church into entertainment centers. Now it's a contest to, to get people to come in, a concert that you use, some gimmick that's used. And the result of that is more carnality and less spirituality in the church. So they believe that the gospel has to be dressed up to be made more attractive. But the truth of it is the gospel's never been attractive. Even when the apostle Paul preached it 2,000 years ago when Jesus preached it, we know, preached it. We know the gospel was not attractive. It's always been offensive. So I'm just, I'm just foolish enough to believe that God is well capable of using his word, just the pure, unvarnished word of God to stir the hearts of people. There is nothing else that saves. So we just do what we've always done. We just preach the word. And we hope that no one goes away from here from Brian Baptist Church without hearing plain truth spoken from God's word. Now, next we see that when the word is sown and when it's cultivated, that there's opposition to it. So thirdly, we note the word is attacked by enemies. Whenever God's word starts to have an effect, the forces of Satan start to mobilize against it because Satan knows that he's about to lose some of his, some of his followers. And so he attacks the word, and he attempts to try to keep that word from taking root in the heart, and so he snatches it away as quickly as possible. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke's uh, recording of that, he said, These by the wayside are they that hear, then cometh the devil, and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So Satan tries to divert the mind from the truth before it becomes effectual to salvation. And you'll notice that to be true. I've talked about this aspect of it many times, that when you talk to people about the Lord, one of the first things they do is try to deflect the conversation to something else. That's Satan snatching away the word of God. Now, what happens is that the hearer 
the one who hears the gospel is then locked in to a battle with God's most potent enemy. And you have to think about this. If the human will never resisted Satan in the past, then how is it going to when Satan is concentrating on this and using his most powerful influences to snatch that word away? In just a moment, I'll show you why Satan's attempts aren't always successful. Verse 45 tells us the motivation of the enemy. It says it's envy. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Envy is a strong motivator. That's one of the reasons why Jesus was falsely accused by by the Jews. Mark 15 says, But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priest had delivered him for envy. What's the reasons for envy? What, what, what is it here in this text that shows that the people were envious? Well, they were envious of the crowds. The Jews in that synagogue where Paul preached were envious of the crowds that were attracted. Now, they, they had a, established a synagogue in this Gentile city like they had many in the um, Roman Empire, and they had enjoyed success in getting Gentile proselytes. But they'd never seen anything like this before. I mean, this place was filling up with people. And they, they may not have wanted the crowds for a variety of reasons. I mean, the, the comers, those that were coming into the synagogue, were different from what they were used to. The Jews considered them to be ceremonially unclean. They were sinners. They were defiled. And the keepers of the synagogues were typically pious Jews and They boasted of their purity in the law, so they weren't about to associate with anybody that hadn't been ceremonially cleansed before they came in into their place of worship. They all had to go through the proper procedures and be prim and proper before they could worship with them. Does that sound a whole lot like churches? Maybe sometimes this happens in our own church, that some people just turn up their noses at people that come in that are different they come in from a different background or they look a little bit different. You know, I heard a story about a preacher once who was trying to get this point across to his congregation. And, and uh, he was preaching on the story of the publican and the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. And he was trying to show the people that sometimes what we maybe, I don't know, maybe it's sometimes unconsciously, but it happens. And maybe sometimes more conscious than unconscious. But we watch people. We see people that come in and sometimes we think that we're better than they are. Now, so what he did was to have one of his people in the church, when I think, if I believe was correct, it was one of the staff people in the church, to dress up in old shabby clothes and to come in disguised so that nobody would recognize who he was and smelly and all of those things. And he had this person come into the service after the preaching started. And he started in the back of the church and walked all the way to the front and sat on the front pew. And he began to watch the reaction of the crowd as that person came in. And that outward reaction was not a good thing. The people didn't seem to like that. I mean, the the, the reaction to the outward appearance was negative. And yet underneath of those clothes was really a person that had a heart for God. But you'd never know that by the way that people treated them. You see, what we have to do is uh, not handpick people that we think need the gospel and go to certain people because of we think they're worthy of it or something on that order. When people come into our church, we need to be welcoming and accepting. We need to be friendly. We need to speak to them 
and help in any way that we can to help them understand the message that's being preached. And if they don't know the Lord, that they would come to salvation. For instance, in our service this morning, we had we had some folks that were new. And coming in, we have no idea if, if they've ever heard the gospel before. They, they have, may have been to churches that never preached the gospel. We never know that. So it's a good thing to try to be encouraging to people, be friendly to them, and then any way that we can help and, and get, share the gospel with them, we need to do that. So I encourage you to do that when people visit us. Well, these Jews were envious of those crowds because they just couldn't attract anybody with this cold, dead formalism that they had in their, in their own meetings. Then secondly, they were envious of the preachers. It's because Paul and Barnabas had a message that met the needs of people, and they were successful at getting the attention of others. And so the attention is drawn away from the rabbis. They're no longer the top dogs in the synagogue while Paul is there. And you see how that, that opposition is so becomes so inwardly focused instead of outwardly focused? And that's also a killer for churches that want to grow and get people to come in. If we're content with what we have, and we're content with who's here now, then we might as well just toss the gospel away and forget it right now. Don't even talk about it anymore if that's what we're content with, just what we have inwardly. But then also, if we're focused inwardly, as I've preached so many times before, inwardly in what we can do and in our own help, then we have to ask the question, why, why does anybody need Jesus? If we can help ourselves, what's Jesus going to do for us? Now, that brings me to a third observation, and this is really the, the key to it, the heart of the matter, and that is they were envious of Christ. They were so opposed to the gospel that they were willing to, to blaspheme and contradict teachings of Scripture. Now, it's one thing for, for you to uh, claim to know the Scriptures and misunderstand them. That's one thing, but it's another one to hear the Scriptures taught and be shown the meaning of the Scripture, and then, as Paul did about Christ, and then to turn away from that. To reject what is so clearly taught is, is just a terrible offense against God. This happened to me several years ago when I was visiting a family, and uh, they complained about what I was preaching. And I sat down with them, and I, I, I wanted to show them why I preach what I preach. And so I took out the Bible, and I read it to them, and I went word for word over the text, and those people looked at that and just as, well, as we would say, and I don't know if you say this here, calm as a cucumber, as calm as a cucumber, they looked at me and they said, yes, that's what it says, but we don't believe it. None of that's to be unexpected. Paul said there, there's going to be opposition. The world will hate the messengers just as it hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the hatred was strong enough for him that, they took the innocent Christ and crucified him. So why in the world will we think that the followers of Jesus would be treated any better than he was? So whenever God's word is preached, it's going to be attacked by the enemy. You can expect that. You, you take the gospel to people, and you can expect opposition to whatever you say. You tell them truth, there will be opposition. But it's also important to remember the next part of this, and I want you to see this, that when you go out to talk to people, it's the Holy Spirit who is in control of what happens. The Holy Spirit can overcome all of the opposition. God doesn't shrink away because of opposition. So we look at this, fourthly, the Word overcomes the natural resistance. 
The Holy Spirit uses that word to overcome this natural bent that we have away from the Word of God. And if it's not the Holy Spirit who activates the Word to overcome that natural resistance, then nobody will ever be saved. The Word of God is clear about that, that it's not naturally in the heart of man to desire the gospel of Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And you know a verse that we always use in, in trying to talk to people about the Lord, Romans 3 Verses 10 through 12, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And then I might mention another verse that's not on your lesson sheet. We don't have it on the screen tonight. But you go to 1 Corinthians 2.14 where it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so you have man with this wicked heart, and he doesn't naturally desire God. Salvation is not an option for him if he's left just, the matter's just left to him. Our natural bent is away from God. Our will is depraved. Our faculties are depraved. We're never going to come to Christ. No one will unless God has begun to work in that person's heart to change that, that, that will that's against him. John makes that point clear in John 1. He said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So when you go out, don't think that you're on your own here, and and it's up to you. You've got to convince these people that they need to be saved. Your only responsibility is give them the word. Be faithful to do that, and let God take over. Actually, God should be leading you. You should pray about it, do all those things. We'll talk about it another time. But, but that's, ne- that's necessary. It's necessary for the Holy Spirit to be in this or no one's going to get saved. So it's clear here something has to happen to the will. And then a person comes to repentance and faith. And that's actually what the Holy Spirit does in regeneration. He brings that person from spiritual death to spiritual life and enables him to express faith in Jesus Christ, repent and express his faith in him. As I've explained so many times, this is, this is a simultaneous process, that regenerating work and coming to repentance and faith, it all happens at the same time. And then we're able to freely choose Christ when we had no ability to do so. Now, I want you to notice in verse 46, Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, and he's speaking to the, to the Jews. But seeing ye put it from you, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. It's a very important point. The Jews and the Gentiles need the gospel. Every person without exception is on their way to hell. And in order for people to, to be saved, God has to intervene bef- and, and stop that headlong plunge. Now, in verse number 46... It shows that the lost condition of every person is not God's fault. Paul said to these unbelieving Jews, you have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. There's a sense, of course, in which we can say, well, none of us is worthy of everlasting life. That would be true, but that's not the full intent of this statement. 
what Paul is saying is that out of your own mouths you have condemned yourself. When you refuse the gospel, you have condemned yourself because this is the thing that will give you life. And so left to ourselves without God's intervention, that's what we're always going to do. Our actions are always going to condemn us. And then we have this important verse that shows us uh, how belief comes. It shows that God is the cause. That's verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Now you notice in the first part of that that the verse magnifies the word. The word is the operator here. The word is the thing that's used. And the word stands for the gospel message. But then what does the second part of the verse mean? As many as were ordained to eternal life believe. Well, obviously that part hinges on uh, the word ordained. What does that mean? Well, the word is a very simple one for us to take out of the Greek text. And it means to appoint. It just means to appoint. It's never used of anything that, that happens by an internal action. Never once in the Word of God is this used as a word that, that signifies an internal action. And so, in other words, this is not something that comes from inside of man. This is always an external thing. So the external appointment, appointment to eternal life comes from only one place. It doesn't come from inside you, and it doesn't come from... Uh, there's certainly not coming from Satan or anything in that way, so it has to come from God himself. And that's, that's very clear by the text. So the meaning is, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. So there you have the answer. Why do some people believe and some don't? Why did, why did Paul preach and the Jews get mad? Some Jews believe, some don't. Some Gentiles believe, some Gentiles just completely turn off the message as well. Well, we have the answer. It's God who brings us to this point of salvation. So what, what's happened here is that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to lift the curtain on something that happens in the eternal purpose of God. Now, I, I, I can't uh, explain it all to you. I don't think anybody can. The Bible teaches at the same time human responsibility. It says it's every person's responsibility to believe the gospel, and the onus is on you. You give the gospel, that person has to believe. They have to receive Christ. And, and we preach it that the onus is on them to receive the message that has been preached. But at the same time, the Bible teaches that God is the one who ordains salvation. I can't deny either side of that. Both of them are taught in the Word of God. I may not be able to reconcile them myself, but both of those things are taught. So God never leaves salvation in our hands. He, he began the world with the intention to fulfill and he ends the world with that intention fulfilled. Now, we go back to the central proposition on the point. The word overcomes natural resistance. And so in the hands of the Holy Spirit, the word overcomes this will of man. Now, Psalm 110, verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. So, this is the teaching of Scripture. Now, a minute ago, I, I talked about how, how Jesus didn't, didn't spend so much time on the other workings of the church, not the, the formal things about membership or the deacons or spend time with the pastors or spend time on ministerial gifts and all of those things, but he spent a whole lot of time on the doctrine of salvation, the completeness of the doctrine of salvation. And Jesus was able to take one verse of Scripture, one verse of Scripture, and teach tremendous doctrines on 
on salvation. John 6.37 is an example of this. All the Father giveth me, that's the ordination, the election shall come to me. That's his effectual grace. That's the Holy Spirit's work. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. That's our eternal security. So you have all of that taught in just one verse. So the Holy Spirit overcomes natural resistance. And if that wasn't true, no man will be saved. Now you say, why do you keep telling this? Why do you bring this back up to us again? Because I want you to understand one more time that you have the responsibility to preach the gospel. What happens after that is all in God's hands. You can't do anything about it after that point. You preach it, you give it to people, you faithfully do that, and then you wait to see what God is going to do with that. Do all you can, but you're not going to be able to convert them yourself. Only God's going to do that. Now let me finish with this thought. One other point, fifthly, the word is sustained by the Holy Spirit. Verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. And I I believe that refers to Paul and Barnabas. I think it refers to those that were saved. They were filled with joy over salvation. Well, now that they've been saved, what happens next? How do they continue in the Christian life? Well, when a person gets saved, is it up to you to just continue in the faith? Is that up to you? Well, the answer to that question is actually yes. Jesus said, the one that endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 10, 22. So the answer is yes, but the key to it is how does it happen? How can the answer be yes? Well, it is because the Holy Spirit sustains us. Now, I want a couple of verses here to hang on to. Uh, for our study in Galatians that we'll get to a little bit later. In Galatians 3, 3, Paul said, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? And another way to put that is, did the Holy Spirit regenerate you and then leave you on your own? How are you, how are you going to maintain your Christian life? And he says, this is God's work. Is it God's work or yours? And the answer to that, well, it's God working in you. Well, what what is it? That enabled the Galatians and others, the Corinthians, for instance, and these people that Paul speaks to in this text. What enables them to leave their idols behind, to choose good instead of evil when they weren't capable of it before? Well, the answer to that is the Holy Spirit. And more correctly, the answer is the entirety of the Trinity of God is involved in this. Hebrews says that Jesus is the author and finisher of our, of our faith. Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there, Jesus Christ is involved. We've talked about the Holy Spirit being involved. And look what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope. That's living, a living hope by the resurrection of the dead, a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, that bring about the completion of our salvation. And so we have the entire Godhead actively working for us. Now, the question, though, 
that we've come down to here, well, who is that person in the Godhead right now working in the world for our benefit? Well, we come back to the Holy Spirit. He, he's the active agent in the world at this time. And so we don't have any hope to continue in Christ if not for the power of the Holy Spirit. Then finally, Paul said in Second Timothy, And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, I, I want to close with that thought, and that's a good place for us to stop. Paul's message and the reaction of the crowd show us here who is in control of our salvation. And we might ask the question, how do we know who's been ordained to eternal life? Don't ever concern yourself with a question like that. There's only one way you can ever know, and that is if people believe. It's as simple as that. If they believe, then, then they are God's people. They've been ordained for it. If they don't, then they aren't. I, I can't change the word of God. That's what it says. So God doesn't tell us to figure all of that out. He just says, preach the word. Someone had said, uh, this was a, well, I, I, it, was, it was a preacher that lived quite, uh, quite a while ago, early 20th century, I believe. And um, he wrote a, a very good systematic theology. And uh, his name was uh, Charles Thomas Paul Simmons, rather, Thomas Paul Simmons. He wrote a good systematic theology. He was, actually, he was a Baptist and, and uh, actually lived in Kentucky, so that made him a little bit smarter than everybody else. So uh, he wrote a, gr- a good systematic theology, and this was, he probably wrote that about the 40s, actually, I think. And he, had a sec- he has a section in that, in that theology where he, where he shows the utility, just the, the, uh, how that preaching the gospel in this way gives us more incentive than any other way to see people saved. Because when you go out with the gospel and you, and you think that, well, it's up to me, and I don't know if God really has any of his people out there, then you're going to sit back and you're going to say, well, I'm just, tonight I might just not get any results. I might as well stay home. I don't know if anybody's going to believe or not. Uh, there may not be anybody out there that will believe. But when you teach it this way, you know that God has left us in the world for a purpose to preach the gospel to people, and his people are out there, and they will believe. What, what stronger incentive could you have than to know the gospel will have success, that God will take the word when it's preached and he will use it, and he does save people. We never have to worry about whether he's going to save people. He, you leave it in his hands, he saves whom he will. Now, the other side of that, people will say exactly the same thing. God saves whom he will. Nobody's going to deny that. No, nobody would possibly deny that God's going to save who he wills. But the other side has no hope that there's anybody guaranteed that ever will. But I do. I do. Because God's word tells me that people will hear and believe. I trust that. I have confidence in that. And that gives us a greater incentive than we could ever have otherwise for preaching God's word to people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, as we go through these different lessons on evangelism, it's important for us to have stirred up in our heart the need for people to hear the gospel and to be saved. Uh, we're, we're never going to get a, a desire for this until we realize the lost condition of people, friends, family, those around us that without Christ they die and go to hell. But we also want to be clear of who is responsible for salvation when people believe. We're just happy, Lord, that you are in control of all of this. And 
that you, your Holy Spirit works in hearts and brings them to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What a thrill it is to know that you have given us a, an opportunity to have a part in that. You could save them apart from us. That's within your ability to do so. But we thank you, Lord, you've given us a part. And then you promise also that you will reward us for being faithful to do this. So what more can we ask? We, we have our own salvation, and then we have promised rewards for faithfully serving you. Uh, there are no better incentives for doing what we should do as the people of God. Help us to do this, Lord. Help us to see the need. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.